everybody and welcome to uh, another episode of the Open Forum podcast. Today we have with us Dr. Stephen Templeton. Uh, Dr. Templeton is a, a PhD from the University of Indiana and Associate Professor there within Microbiology and Immunology and having also previously worked at the CDC and the NIOSH. Um, Dr. Templeton, uh, that's a very brief 20-second introduction. Um, why don't you take a couple minutes to introduce yourself and then we're just going to dive on in. Yeah, so I uh, um, started off uh, really interested in immunology, wanted to be an immunologist since I had been in an undergraduate. Um, and was introduced to the topic itself. I thought it was a beautiful subject, wanted to know more about it. And so I went to graduate school and uh, ended up studying viral immunology, interestingly, a coronavirus. Um, and then after graduate school, I went on to CDC NIOSH, which is the Occupational Safety and Health arm of CDC research. Uh, that was in West Virginia. I spent there for about four years. Then I came here in 2011. Been here for over 10 years, um, studying infectious disease models, particularly in uh, immune compromised individuals like fungal infection. That's what I've mainly focused on. And then since the pandemic has started, <clears throat> I've been really interested in um, thinking about the pandemic response itself and uh, the, the fear that was evident um, in response to the pandemic. And local. I started out thinking in a local sense, trying to kind of reassure people um, that the worst case scenario probably wasn't uh, going to happen. And then it uh, began to get sort of bigger and bigger on a nationwide and now an international scale. So, um, you know, I didn't really know how this was going to shake out when, it first, when I first began to speak out, but this is where I'm at. Enough. on oh. your podcast <laughs> yeah that brings us to, to here today I think um what you mentioned there about getting involved at the local level um you're also involved on the local school board right or a local district with regards to the COVID pandemic response there right yeah so um it's just an advisory board um, and I was I was actually asked to be on it because I think the the superintendent actually wanted a contrarian. Um, That's good. And, uh, I might be the only one. Um, That's what it seems like, but uh, um, I think it's useful to have somebody who's willing to, to challenge what's, uh, what's yeah. been said. To look at things from the other side, which um, it's funny, the superintendent feels that way, and yet on the national and international scale of things, there doesn't seem to be um, a lot of want for dissenting voices, almost. Well, they have to deal with the political side of it. Um, you know, sure. it's, uh, if you're, I mean, some of the things that, the experience that I have, but yet, you know, I'm, I, I have, you know, I'm within six degrees separation of a lot of these interesting things. Um, you know, I studied coronavirus immunology, but I don't do it right now. Um, I work for CDC NOSH, but I don't do that now. Um, you know, it's, 
I'm an immunologist, but I don't study vaccines right now. Uh, and so um, having a, a connection to these things, but not having your uh, career depend on the sort of group pressure that you might be thinking or experiencing, whether it's real or imagined, uh, allows me to, to be a little bit more open uh, in criticizing things, I think. Because, um, you know, when you hear from people who are in positions of leadership and public positions, I mean, they're they're concerned about everyone's perception, you know, and that's uh, something I wrote about in my last Substack article. Um, and uh, they need to be seen at sort of addressing that perception. And if, if the public is way off and, and their, uh, you know, reality, then the leaders are going to reflect that whether they want to or not. I mean, that's kind of, unfortunately, uh, politicians and, and leaders' jobs is that they don't see it as standing up to the public. Um, they see it as serving the public and sort of continuing their own interests. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's, that's a key point you raise. It's their own interests rather than that of the public, which is kind of funny considering their position there is as a result of the public that they're supposed to be serving and, and looking at their ideals. But let's come back to the main crux of why we're here today. Let's come back to immunology, um, your wheelhouse. And is there, straight off the bat, let's go for the big question that, that most people want to hear, most people want to hear answered. Natural immunity Initially, we were told it was only good for three months, yet we have decades and decades of research over what natural immunity is. We've got things like cross immunity as well from previous infections. Is there anything to worry about for people who have developed natural immunity as a result of um, being face-to-face uh, -face with coronavirus, COVID-19, and having uh, had infection? Yeah, everybody has. I mean, that's... You know, you have to give a nuanced answer to that, right? It's I mean, a loaded question. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, everybody has a different immune response. Everybody has a different history of what coronaviruses they've been infected with. Um, everybody has a different capability uh, and uh, <clears throat> of their immune system, depending on what drugs they take, depending on their overall health, whether they're... Um, obese or have some other inflammatory disease, uh, you know, so it's really, you know, generally, I can say that uh, immunity to infection uh, does provide uh, a lot of protection from severe disease in, you know, upon a reinfection. And uh, some of the comparisons uh, between na uh, what, you know, natural immunity, which some immunologists don't even like that term. So I try to use the term infection acquired immunity. Okay, um, I'll do my best it, to know, use that. Not that there'll be a lot of immunologists listening, but um, I try to be consistent. But anyway, um, <clears throat> you know, some, some of the, the nuance I think has been lost when comparing the vaccine induced immu immunity to infection induced immunity or acquired immunity um, because 
you know, they just will say, is this better or is it, is it worse? Is it longer lasting? I mean, there's a lot of different aspects to that. One of the things that claims that have been made when people say, well, um, vaccine induced immunity acquired immunity is, is better is they're just talking about antibody levels and, and what's that been shown is that they they peak um, at a much higher level than many people who have acquired infection immunity they're only talking about antibody level, levels and then they drop um, eventually both of them drop but you also have the other arm of the immune system which is your cellular immunity and those are cells that recognize infected cells and kill them uh, called T cells. There are other cells, types of T cells that help other immune cells with their function. Name, right? yeah. And uh, those helper cells also are quite long lasting and they only take it, you know, two or three days to get, get ramped up. Um, and, and antibodies can get made pretty quickly. So um, when you're talking about better or worse, there's a lot of nuance in there that, you know, gets lost, you know, I mean, are you talking about preventing infection completely or just preventing severe disease? I can say, you know, uh, infection acquired immunity is, is generally very, very robust for most people. Yeah. I think one of the things I want to latch onto there before, um, digging too deep into the different levels of the immunity is just on the antibody response or the amount of antibodies that are there, that is being touted as the way to measure your ability to fight infection. But in reality, that's not the only thing that matters, right? And that's kind of what you were saying there as well, that the amount of antibody present in someone on on testing whatever um if you're going to do a, a rapid test or something which is going to show your antibody level that's not the optimal measure if there was someone talking to you as an immunologist and they said yeah i've got x amount of antibodies per millibar uh, what have you what would your response be to that that they had a, a basic lab test for their antibodies, whether it's specific or not. Um, you know, I mean, the different, different assays have probably different sensitivity. And, um, you know, they, if they're just measuring, and this is probably not part of the nuance, if they're just measuring antibodies against coronavirus, you don't know whether they're neutralizing antibodies or um, what exactly they're their function is. So there are a lot of different types of antibodies. Generally, if you have a natural uh, infection acquired immunity and you have antibodies, there are going to be some there that are protective. Um, but uh, there is some obvious nuance in there. If somebody had a really uh, rough infection, um, had a lot of inflammation, was hospitalized, some of those antibodies could be pathological and actually cause more severe disease uh, upon reinfection you mean yeah yeah um and are you then referring to sort of ade there a little bit antibody dependent enhancement kind of thing there yes that can happen in some people certainly can you maybe expand a little bit more there for us Yeah, so I mean, if it's not clearing the virus and it, there's a lot of virus there, it can, um, 
you know, cause some uh, collateral damage in the tissues where the virus is. Um, the antibody can you know, bind to things that aren't, aren't virus or it does it in a sort of an incomplete way. Um, it's not necessarily enhancing the infection, although there are some viral infections that can happen, but it, it could be enhancing the disease itself and that's the inflammation, uh, which is really, and people who have severe disease with uh, COVID-19 are getting this uh, collateral damage from the immune system, not necessarily from the virus itself. So from the immune system, um being a little bit too ramped up, the immune system being a little bit hyperactive, shall we say? Right. It either, you know, it's it, one way to explain it would be it, it, it gets behind in the early immune, innate immune system, and then it overcompensates um, and uh, has a very destructive uh, response that ends up, you know, harming lung function and potentially killing the individual. Okay. And this is a, a function of our immune system then. So what is it that we can do preventatively to try to mitigate these kinds of risks, these kinds of issues? Is there anything that we can do at um, point of infection or point of realization that there's something going on? Yeah, well, I would say in a really broad sense to just be, live healthy lifestyle, you know, um, because, you know, the people that uh, have lots of comorbidities, some obviously are ones that individuals don't have control over, um, but some of them more control than others. So each individual should just live as healthy as they can. And that's the sort of the big picture. Um, there are probably some genetic uh, determinants that may make things worse for certain people because some families have shown to, um, you know, have more serious disease. It's not entirely clear what those are, as far as I, as far as I know. Um, I've seen some papers, but nothing really stood out in that. So, um, obviously, that would be something people wouldn't really have control of. You know, these immune responses are trade-offs. If you have a, a really strong immune response, you're going to have some damage, um, but you also can be, you know, really protected from a future infection. And a longer lasting antibody response that could limit a reinfection. Um, so every immune response does have a trade-off. You know, sometimes people get an autoimmune disease after they've had an infection um, or after they've had a vaccination. Uh, so immune responses are, are very uh, well evolved to deal with these things, but they're not perfect. To, to, you know, you get a billion people infected with the same virus, you're gonna have an awful lot of different <laughs> responses uh, to study. It's gonna take a long time to sort it all out. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, so I suppose one of the things that I was leaning towards when asking you, how can we mitigate it? You've quite rightly said lifestyle factors are a big aspect in this. Yeah. A lot of research has come out to, uh, to say that, you know, 
um, comorbidities uh, such as uh, obesity or previous underlying heart conditions or things like that can have a massive influence on the severity of disease that you may or may not acquire. Uh, so I think what I was leaning towards there was, is there any kind of um, pharmaceutical intervention that we could potentially use? And where I was going to lean on that is there has been some work or uh, not so much some work. There have been some people that said that if you're going to use uh, any other type of pharmaceutical uh, drug, um, if we uh, say fluvoxamine has recently been shown to uh, have quite a positive effect, then you may as well just get vaccinated because you're doing the exact same thing as uh, what you'd be doing with the vaccination. Does it have any modifying effects to your immune response if you are to use um, any other kind of drugs during your infection period? Would it prevent you from developing a full, robust immune response? I suppose is the question that I'm trying to get at here. I suppose potentially yes, but by the time you know that you're infected and you get to the point where you're taking one of these um, intervention, pharmaceutical interventions, the course of an immune response in terms of you know how much memory is there um, after you're, you've recovered, I mean, a lot of that is kind of already take, been taken care of, you know, so you're starting to see the, the, the bad effects of immune response. Um, you're, you're, you're not really interfering with it unless you started taking it before you got infected, you know, because that's where those first inflammatory signals would really make a difference and actually if you would interfere, interfered with that, you might prevent the early immune response and uh, prevent some formation of memory maybe later on. But yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be like I said, it's it's a trade-off. You you want to knock out the immune system in a later stage. And that's if you're suffering this that's collateral damage. Yeah. I would say you know the sort of just automatically taking some of these drugs um, if you're not in a high risk group. I mean, just me personally, I would be interested in, in doing anything other than just taking care of myself and getting through it. I'm 47, so I'm kind of on the... Getting close to... Not, uh, not really in, in high risk, but I, you know, kind of on the, not yet. On the cusp there. Yeah, yeah, yeah not yet. Um, okay, and then I suppose that kind of brings us uh, sort of neatly towards the vaccine-induced response. And this is something that you've written about, uh, the comparison between both um, naturally acquired uh, immunity, uh, infection-acquired immunity, sorry, uh, versus uh, vaccine-acquired uh, immunity. What, if any, difference is there that we're likely to be seeing in the immune response between these two um, ways of going about it, shall we say? Now we have different types of <clears throat> vaccines and uh, the one that uh, is most widely used too are the Moderna and Pfizer and those are the ones I use, at least in my Substack article. Um, and uh, you know, it's not a, not a live virus, it's just simply a, a encoded mRNA, the spike protein that 
enter cells because it's packaged in a way that will allow the cells to take it up and translate those mRNAs into spike protein that then get assembled in a way that looks like those cells are infected to the immune system that induces them to basically you know, mount a response in that area at least. Now there are some you know, spike proteins that migrate around. I realize you know, they get to the lymph nodes or other parts of the body, but um, the initial response is much in the area where there's the injection uh, in your arm, the muscle cells of your arm. And uh, in an infection, you're actually getting infected in your airway cells, which are mucosal cells. They're different type of cells than the cells that are in your arm. Um, and they have a different type of an immune response there because in your airways, you're breathing in things all, kind, all the time. You know, you're breathing in um, bacteria and fungi and viruses, and you're not really mounting strong responses to all of those things. Hopefully, um, if you're a healthy person, you're, um, your immune system's ignoring a good chunk of that junk that you're and just clearing it out and not really doing anything with it. Um, so you ha have you know, mucus that's being secreted and things like that that are keeping out pathogens. You don't have that you know, in your skin and your muscle. And so the, where the immune response occurs really does make a difference in how a memory response is um, induced and maintained. So yeah, actually having an infection in your airways puts cells in closer proximity to those airways that are memory cells, that if there is a reinfection, um, it'll be, those cells remember where to go. They remember to go to your airways, your lungs, and um, that doesn't happen in uh, a vaccine that's just injected into your arm. They don't get those signals. You have those cells there. They will eventually find their way to the lung if you have an infection that does prevent severe disease and, and uh, that's been shown, but they don't have the same priming. It's what we call that first stage. They don't get the same signals. And some parts of the immune system are unique to mucosal surfaces, to the lungs and your airways. And you wouldn't have those, some of those induced at all. One antibody that's made is called IgA. Um, and that is specifically a mucosal antibody, you would get um, very little IgA produced by an injection into your deltoid muscle. So that's why people are doing you know, research on uh, vaccines that are inhaled, that are live, what they call live attenuated vaccines. People are doing research with those uh, type of experimental vaccines trying to enhance the memory response. And I always use that as an example and I can you know, show people papers where people are doing these type of experiments. I would say, why bother? Why are, why are those immunologists bothering to do those if these- um, the ones in the muscle were good enough. Are perfect, yeah, right. Yeah. So um, these claims that uh, vaccine-induced immunity is better than natural immunity doesn't really hold water based on how researchers are 
conducting research right now. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it was that good, then they wouldn't be looking for the next step, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I, is that, uh, I, I assume then there's going to be differences between that and then something such as the oral polio vaccine, because that's, um, I think, a live attenuated vaccine, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and uh, I believe that one, they're looking for the, the, the immune response to be created more so by going through the body uh, orally rather than uh, into the airways, right? So probably yeah. So that, that that's in the gut, right? The, the, yeah. But it's the injury, yeah. you're also talking about a mucosal surface. It's just a different. Uh, the gut is also mucosal um, tissue, so um, you have very unique immune responses there as well, and it is much more targeted and longer lasting with an oral polio vaccine. I stopped using that because some individuals will a very, very small number will have a uh, reversion to um, polio disease. And when you have in Western countries such a low incidence of polio, it no longer is worth the risk because it's enough to do the inactivated vaccine uh, in it. You know? So over time, they switch to the inactivated polio vaccine basically for, for that reason, because then it started to make a difference. We're talking about very, very low numbers here, of people getting polio versus getting a revert polio from the oral vaccine. Okay, interesting. Um, but then coming back to the uh, mRNA uh, spike protein vaccines then, this is something that I've uh, read a fair chunk on um, as to why there was such a massive leak uh, shall we say, between the rollout of the vaccine and then the amount of people who were vaccinated acquiring a Delta or Omicron uh, infection. And uh, a lot of what I read um, lent towards the uh, idea that the initial vaccine was based on the spike protein of the alpha variant. One, is there something to be made there? And two, is this leaning back towards what you were saying about the induced response uh, versus the whole virus when it goes in through the airways versus the induced response uh, through it being injected into muscle tissue. Yeah, so I think the vaccines will, it, and you know, I mean, these are things that are sort of fluid and it's hard to be 100% certain you know, because this is kind of research that's coming out. It's developing, yeah. Daily, yeah, it's a developing situation. Um, but what it, what it looks like is that these uh, vaccines will protect against severe disease for most people, um, even if they get home crime. Um, but they may protect against infection less uh, and transmission less than they would from the earlier variants. Um, that is how it appears to me at this time. Um, so you can get a lot of individuals who are vaccinated who are infected. They still have a, uh, a, some protection from their uh, you know, T cell response, maybe less so from their, their antibodies. So that's gonna, that's gonna happen. I mean, it, this is, 
virus is always going to mutate. And luckily, this last variant seems to be milder no matter who's infected, no matter what their vaccination status is. Obviously, with the huge numbers of people that are infected, there's still going to be a portion of those who get severe disease. And uh, that's going to be the case as long as you've got a large number of people being infected at, in a small period of time, which is what we saw, especially here in the States with, with uh, Omicron. Okay. And I suppose that's what you said earlier as well. If you're going to have a billion people infected, there's going to be a, a lot of differences in the response. And that goes to also whether or not they're vaccinated. There are going to be differences in the response that people are going to be able to mount up, uh, shall we say, from their own uh, immune systems. And what you mentioned there uh, in that, as it stands with this new variant, it seems to be a little less virulent, um, which, fingers crossed, things keep going that way. Um, what is going to be the long-term role of this vaccine? Do you think, from an immunology standpoint, are we going to have to keep rolling out boosters every few months or something like that? In a way, that's, that's kind of a political question. <laughs> I mean, in an ideal world, uh, you know, I, I would think in an ideal world that people who have been identified as vulnerable uh, would continue to be boosted. Uh, but, uh, you know, kids and people who are not in vulnerable populations would just basically live with the virus, um, and uh, you know I don't I don't make those rules. So um, it's going to be different. And the, I guess the, the encouraging thing is that it's going to be different in every country, and depending on where you live, that's a good or bad thing. Um, also, depending on your views. But the data that's collected from all this is really going to tell us and you know, how how effective that specific requirements were in each country um, will give us some information. And just like with non-pharmaceutical interventions, which have been widely adopted or not, um, we have a lot of information about differences those effects had um, in different countries, in different states, different provinces, cities. And sometimes, you know, even across the river and you know, very close by. So uh, it's going to be a long time to sort of assimilate all that data, but I think that would be a really interesting thing to keep looking at. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the uh, MPIs and non-pharmaceutical interventions. Uh, there was that, uh, I think it was the paper from Johns Hopkins that came out recently uh, that showed that on the whole, the utilization of lockdowns had a 0.2% difference or something like that? Have you come across that yet yourself? Um, I haven't looked closely at that one. I have seen it, and um, I'm not surprised by the, the um, numbers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, based on my understanding before uh, this, uh, when this first started, there was never a, a belief that respiratory virus pandemic could be stopped in its tracks 
and uh, it'll only be sort of endured in sort of the least painful way possible. Uh, and, and with a lot of warnings not to cause collateral damage or continue unsustainable. That's one of the things. Mitigation uh, strategies. Yeah, those, those collateral damages that we're now seeing or have felt whether that be supply chain issues, whether that be economically, or if that's to do with the mental health crisis that was already pretty rough going prior to 2019, but has only gotten worse. Um, I was speaking to a CCU nurse also on, on the podcast, and she said in her uh, ICUs and CCUs, they had at times more people who were there for attempted suicide um, than they had COVID patients at times. Uh, the domestic abuse rates that have gone up, the um, unfortunate effect that this has had on children and on education and for, unfortunately, some people from uh, less economically advantageous backgrounds, it's also had a massive effect for them as well, where school was a good place for them to be. Um, can you maybe speak to us a little bit from your knowledge, uh, from everything that you study, everything that you've learned, everything that you've done over the years, as to where these non-pharmaceutical interventions may have even had a place, or if it was just a load of old rubbish that we were all sold because someone else did it, um, or in this instance, China uh, did it first and said that it worked, so the other governments implemented it, because to my knowledge, from what I've read, uh, at least for the UK, lockdown was never an intervention prior to this that they'd ever written in any of their pandemic planning strategies. And they have these strategies. These are things that governments have mapped out. But enough from me. People are here to hear you. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, you're hitting, you're hitting on it. And, and so uh, in, like, it might have been 2020. I don't remember exactly when it was, but... Uh, Jeffrey Tucker wrote, wrote an article, and he's the Brownstone Institute founder, and they repost a lot of my um, articles from my Substack. He wrote an article, and I think this is the first time I actually noticed his writing, but he wrote an article about how basically leaders around the world sort of copied each other um, with lockdown, and it was a, it spread almost like a virus itself. I mean, it... Uh, yeah. Uh, they saw they didn't want to be the last one left out and there was just the spread where while well, everyone's doing it um, and it kind of starts almost like a you know like a riot or something the first person to break grab a rock stone. Yeah. And, and, and break the window their their um, threshold is is a certain level and the, Next person might have a higher threshold, but there's already somebody that's done it. Um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this with the uh, with rioting, you know. And so I think with any sort of peer group, you know, the, everybody was watching what everybody else was doing, and there were a few that basically said, "All right, we're going to do this because there's no downside." Obviously, they ignored what downside there might be, but we cannot. You know, and I think Fauci said this. Um, you know, it is much better if we get criticized for overreacting. Um, and at some point, 
that that was what the message became even though the very early stages the message was very measured at least in the united states it was you know let's there's there we, do, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves we don't want to assume it's going to be the worst case scenario um the same folks that were saying these things that made a lot of sense um you know asymptomatic people don't drive pandemic transmission you know all of that stuff made total sense at the time and then there was a, a switch where everyone started to not care about those things and um you know be part of the panic and instead of the the solution for it the leaders were the same uh, they were they were afraid too and not just for their safety but for their positions and their reputation um, and i think it it just spread like that with without any consideration of you know well if we're going to get blamed we're all going to get blamed um, for overreacting and i can always say well you know this is what who recommended or this is what cdc recommended or this is what this other government did um, you know i guess in the end we could probably all blame china but um you know there's the person who the people who stood up to this are the ones who really should be rewarded in the end um i don't know how long that will take yeah might be a while <laughs> I, it's not that i i, I was um trying to blame China not at all. Each individual government um, made their decisions on how to or how not to approach this. Um, if you look at the Swedish government, they went in the complete opposite direction and let everything just run roughshod, go on life as normal. Mexico had uh, about as much as the same um, as Sweden in terms of not shutting things down and uh, going for other routes to, to try to face this. Um, so it it became an unfortunate experiment in its own right i think when you compare the numbers from place to place and i think anyone listening might then talk about the population density in sweden versus the population density in somewhere in in the us or the uk but if you break that down further and say all right we won't take the whole country let's go for a comparative city the numbers are the same uh, either which way you want to go about it over time yeah. so and of course the you know originally the uk had a swedish like response yeah and uh they got basically they got throttled for it throttled so, yeah, yeah right yeah. i mean i don't know if it was because boris johnson got severe covid and that just you know doomed everyone else but um it uh it totally changed, um, whereas here it was more, we got a lot of mixed signals. Um, in the UK, you got a lot of strong signal one way and then completely yeah. strong signal Took a the other strong way. strong left hand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but then with that said, one of the other things that was and is still used, um, thankfully lockdowns uh, uh, being scaled back uh, in a massive way um but masks are still a very hotly debated topic and um 
dare I say it, with very little evidence to show uh, effectiveness. Can you maybe talk to us a little bit about that and maybe a little bit about the evidence uh, surrounding it? And then maybe we can talk about the psychological aspects briefly too. But yeah. Yeah, I was really surprised um, at what happened. I, I had not a lot of experience doing mask research. I don't, um, I was in the health effects laboratory division with the people that do those types of studies. In fact, the uh, double mask study that CDC liked to, liked to cite, um, that was done in the, the old division that I used to work in. Interesting. So I, I know the I know the authors of that. And when you look at that paper, it's funny because they say something like they use mannequins and they have like an interesting model where the mannequins are coughing um, and they put the mask over it and um, they put two of them, obviously, and then they measure particles that um, whether they could get through the mask or not. And uh, it's interesting if you look at the discussion of that, they say something to the effect of how this is not something you could generalize to real world usage. You know, it's just a model. It hasn't been validated in the way that we can immediately say, you know, this translates into the real world. That's exactly what they should have said, you know, but the CDC, when they would talk about that, they obviously would completely ignore that part of a paper from within their own organization. So um, <clears throat> that's kind of a, 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 a you know, microcosm of how they have dealt with, with everything. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's a combination of things, but, you know, I, I blame the fact that we're, we've become this safety obsessed um, culture and demonstrating that you're concerned about safety. is just this sort of high virtue that has sort of only increased and it, it's even to the point where if something big happens, like a disaster, like the pandemic, then um, people want safety so much to the point where um, you have to give them more of an illusion than any sort of real steps that they could take to keep themselves safe. Because in reality, this was a, a, a natural disaster. And people were trying to treat it like a war. Um, which I think is a, a terrible analogy. Um, this is something that we have to endure and not something we can fight. You know, there's no real enemy here. There's no, no bombers over London. This is a, this is a strands of mRNA surrounded by a protein, you know, and um, it's, it's very good at doing what it does. <laughs> and. Uh, um, the masks, I think, were a psychological offering that uh, leaders could offer to people to help them feel safe. I mean, after you shut things down and you convince people the only way you can save lives is to never go out again, you're going to have to convince them at some point that they should go out again and try to begin to resume some semblance of a normal life. But so in some cases, you've really been successful in that message, right? And you have to give them some intermediate. And so I think the masks were maybe a psychological way to do that, to give that um, safety blanket almost to people. And uh, 
Then, of course, some folks believed it, and some folks took it so far that it became this, uh, you know, overriding symbol of caring for others, you know, being taking the pandemic seriously. Um, I was about to and, say, virtue signaling that you mentioned not two minutes ago, it, it becomes something for them to champion as a signal of how virtuous they are, right? Absolutely. And it, but, you know, the real interest is, for me is how it's so different in different places. I mean, you, the, there's different cultural, you know, obviously uh, aversions to masks in Scandinavian countries. And um, they put a value on communication between teachers and students. And, uh, you know, here, the safety or at least the appearance of safety completely overrides that. Um, we're not considering what the evidence is for children and having it actually make them safer or actually improve their overall health, um, which is another thing that's, that's been ignored. Um, so education is, is secondary to these things. Uh, and that's, that's been a real tragedy one that I've, I've tried to fight yeah yeah and uh, I was just just gonna say now that you've mentioned that the effect that it's had on on children can you maybe talk to us a little bit about the the studies that um sort of insinuated that the student uh body essentially were continue continuing to drive the pandemic and that they were a big risk also for teachers and whatnot and in actuality when yeah i'll, I'll let you uh, explain that there's a very interesting piece in one of the substacks you wrote on it so maybe if you can expand a little bit for the audience on that the one that stands out most for me was the study from south korea yeah that's the one that yeah, concluded yeah. that uh, children were equal to adults transmission of the virus. And it really had poor methodology and didn't actually within, um, with their contact tracing, couldn't identify who the, uh, the index cases were. And so they couldn't actually make that conclusion um, based on their data, but it was widely reported, at least here in the United States, New York Times had a, a big article on that right about the time that schools here were trying to determine whether they were going to, to open with in-person education or with remote learning. And I think that article had a huge influence on um, decisions that were made. Schools going remote in the fall of uh, 2020. And uh, there was a correction article a month later, you know, after these decisions had been made. Uh, basically explaining that, yeah, well, you know, this wasn't necessarily the case because we can't determine who the index cases were, if kids were actually spreading it or not. And it, there was an interesting line in that story about how, well, this is a good lesson to you know, show that you can't take the results of one study and, um, and, and blow it out of proportion, which is exactly what they did and what everybody did. Um, and I really, 
you know, it was interesting just being on social media and talking to teachers and, you know, people involved with the schools, how they really, it's like they wanted that to be true. Um, and, and there was any sort of argument that, you know, this is not, this isn't a well done study. This is, there's other evidence that children are not major super spreaders like we think they are. Um, and I think with influenza, it wasn't always, it's not a hundred percent thought that kids drive that either. Um, there's some people that do think that, but at least in the book, um, The Great Influenza by John Barry, I don't know if you've read that, but he makes, sure. a, he makes a case for um, that being kind of misunderstood, a myth that kids drove, um, that kids drive influenza in being in school. So um, I think it's just assumed based on your experience, you know, as anyone's experience as a parent when they have kids in daycare or whatever, and they're sick for months after that, they just um, assume that kids are gonna be major spreaders. And uh, it turned out that there was never really strong evidence for it, but people were really looking for it. Mm. And um, it, was, it was just really perplexing to me that um, when you're, I think, in a panic stage, that you can't, you're really looking to validate that panic. And uh, it's very difficult to encounter someone and not, you know, not fight back against that cognitive dissonance that you have. Because I was trying to give people, you know, like, you don't know this. I mean, this is not something that we're seeing. Um, someone that I know said, you know, she's familiar with, um, you know, she goes to Paris, you know, frequently said, well, let's just, you know, see what's going on in schools in Europe first. And then we can make the decision what to do, because some of them are keeping their schools open and, and uh, see what's happening there. And then we can determine what to do for our schools. And then later on, I'd hear no discussion of that, you know, it's like, actually, we do have that data now, and it's, it's, it's not bad in the places that stayed open, and um, promising. People, people here were very, um, they, there was real lack of curiosity to what was going on in, in, in other, other countries, I mean, for such a worldwide event, you think everyone would want to know, okay, how is it being handled in different places? And how are they getting along? You know, I mean, mm. and um, that data was there. It's not necessarily accurate everywhere, but um, with that sort of caveat in mind, uh, people should have really paid attention, and they didn't, and that was really surprising to me. I think, I think for myself it's become less surprising as I've seen people's responses to this in the sense that people are quite happy to be told what to do and, and have the thinking done for them so that they don't have to, especially in something like the, the pandemic that we've had, if they don't have to make the decision, whether it goes right or wrong, 
they feel like they've got no blame in it and oh that's kind of just the way the cookie crumbled so uh, oopsie daisy whereas if there was a little bit more thought for yeah people thinking for themselves there would be more onus to take responsibility for when things did eventually go wrong or when we saw suicide rates popping up through the roof or attempted suicide rates or domestic abuse cases going up or child development suffering massively especially through the use of of masking if you think of a child who is now four years old or six years old they've spent a lot of their early development only being able to look at part of someone's face in order to get an idea of what's going on i don't know about you but for me uh, in my work it's very important to know how someone's reacting to what i'm saying if i'm going in a direction that is going to be useful if or if i'm throwing them off completely or what have you and there are all these elements that because somebody else outside of the individual made that decision okay we're just going to accept it and that's essentially applying what i said about lead world leaders to the average person, right? I mean, yeah. it, uh, it started with the leaders and everybody was like, okay, we're going to do it this way. Everybody says it's going to work. We're going to uh, assume that it's all going to work, assume that it is working. Anybody that says contrary, we're going to shout them down and, you know, at, at, or at least ignore them. And, uh, and I think, I think that's exactly what happened. I, I, have done the most that I can to sort of undo some of how my kids have been treated um, in school. My, I have a six-year-old, so uh, they they understand a little bit about you know how this has happened, and 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 I always I, I told them over and over. I said, you know, this is we're doing this not because the virus can hurt you because it doesn't hurt little kids as much as it does older people who are already sick. And I said, you know, we're doing this because people are afraid. And um, I, think, I think they really understand this. But in terms of communication, I mean, they know it's, it's, it's awful for them and they complain about it. And a lot of people complain about it. Yet I go to some of these meetings and I hear, well, they, you know, the kids really don't mind. Um, they, they're doing really well, you know, they, and uh, so, I mean, the, the folks that made these decisions, it's going to be hard to convince them that this was not a good thing um, because they want that validated, you know? I mean, and at the time, everyone was saying it was a good thing. There was no downside, no trade-offs. Um, and, uh, you know, having to, to face that later on, uh, pun intended, is... Uh, it's going to be hard for them. And I, you know, I realize some people, you know, are affected more by it. Some people it didn't bother at all. I happen to read lips more than I realized, but then when people are wearing masks, I'm like, I, I don't know what you're saying. You know, I mean, I, my hearing is okay, but it, it's not perfect. And I really follow people's lips. And I realize that when I'm in heavily masked areas. Um, so for a child that's developing, it's just got to be, same. incredibly terrible yeah. Uh, yeah we need to acknowledge that 100 yeah 
actually there's something that you mentioned there with regards to um when you're explaining it to your children that for them this virus poses very little threat if any the amount of children that um have died as a result of this is absolutely minuscule in comparison to the older population it it almost bears on not even comparing it and of the ones that have um this might be a, a little bit upsetting to hear that the ones that have the majority of those have also been quite severely ill beforehand or had multiple comor comorbidities so uh, generally speaking children are almost virtually zero risk virtually zero it's not absolute zero but as close as we we're going a healthy, to get comfortably a healthy child dying from covid is almost unheard of and and, yeah. and if you know if some if somebody says that a healthy child died i keep thinking well you know you just didn't know what was going on. what was wrong i mean uh, something undiagnosed yeah and then that kind of brings me on to why has this become something where it is something to worry about for the older population it, it, does immunosenescence play a role in this or yeah what is it that's going on there yeah no that's a very good question um yeah i think that has to be part of it uh, you know we we can't develop new we kind of rely on a pool of cells as we get older memory cells from different types of infections um, because you get new t cells from your thymus that thymus shrinks over time it's actually replaced by fat tissue and uh, <clears throat> starts shrinking when you're 10 shrinks the rest of your life and uh, so you rely more and more on the pool of cells that are already there that have been activated by other pathogens other viruses and bacteria and so on and so it's possible in some individuals that they don't have that um, if we're going with the you know fully on environmental cause of who gets sick yeah it's, it's are, are you sick with something else that's limiting your ability to have an immune response that's going to be effective um, or are some of the some of the previous immune responses you've had made it so that the response to this particular virus not going to be affected or is going to be damaging. Um, and I think that's, a, that's something that's really interesting to, uh, will be interesting to study in the next few years. Absolutely. And I, I suppose then that kind of brings me on to when you look at the average age of people that have died compared to the average life expectancy those numbers are quite close i think in the uk data the last time i looked at it average age of death was 83 and average life expectancy in the uk is 82 it's pretty phenomenal that and to anyone listening that's not to say that younger people haven't died unfortunately that has happened um it it has there's there's no two ways about that but on average the people that are most affected are the people that are almost out the door so to speak is there anything that we can take away from that 
um, in order to start returning back to normal, do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if I'm interpreting your question correctly, but um, I think about how, you know, elderly people, you know, in the United States, they're in, in uh, long-term care facilities. Um, I think it, it's, it's an interesting problem having all of those folks there in, in one, one location. Um, and because there are some, at some point, some states in the United States had 80% of their deaths were in these long-term care facilities. Um, so uh, it was really a, a problem that was targeted to those types of places, yet the response was so untargeted, unfocused. Um, and so how in a future situation, you know, to keep, keep those vulnerable people safe, I think it's a really interesting question um, and keep their, their quality of living um, because my parents are in assisted living now um, in the Midwest, in the United States, they both got COVID. Um, it was a, very mild for them, luckily, um, but up to that point, they felt like they were imprisoned. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's a big challenge. It's not something that we could, we could solve, um, but uh, certainly that would be the thing in, in, in retrospect to, uh, to kind of investigate is how do, you, how do you protect those folks and how do you do it in a way where you're not lowering their quality of life? not imprisoning them essentially while we're still on on the i suppose topic of older people maybe not the elderly elderly but you mentioned there that as we get older we rely more on this pool of prior infections um ah, um just just quickly then what about cross immunity as there has been some evidence to show that people who were affected by uh, the coronavirus from 2003 2004 have been able to show some moderate levels of immunity against what we have now yeah no i i i was always found that really fascinating um and and i think the that that's contributed to why a lot of people have mild um, infections, and maybe even some why some older people who have comorbidities still have mild infections, is because they have some protection from previous uh, coronavirus infections, or at least something that overlaps in a way that helps them okay. not develop severe disease. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily present, prevent them from getting the infection or giving it to someone else, much like we're seeing, you know, with the with the vaccine with the vaccine situation. Um, last question then, what would be your advice to anyone uh, from an immunological standpoint? What would be your piece of advice for people in order to get back into the world of the living, should we say? Be as healthy as you can and don't um, be a paranoid germaphobe because it doesn't, uh, it's not worth it. It's, um, it's, it's, it's um, very damaging if you carry that 
that fear with you um, indefinitely. You got to let go. There's also that element of if you don't have any bacteria or germs around you, then your body has nothing to essentially prepare its response for, right? Yeah, and I mean, that's even possible with, you know, mild viral infections. We don't want to get rid of those. Those are part of the way that you develop your immune system and train it to um, attack things that may come down the pike much later that could be worse. So you don't want to avoid those either necessarily. All right. It's almost like your immune system is a muscle in a way that you do need to train it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, uh, Dr. Samson, really appreciate your time. Uh, and uh, yeah, hopefully uh, for the listeners, there's been some valuable information there or at least some insight into a different way of, of looking at the issues at hand. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.